Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Uh, today, we're finishing up uh, our series that we're in, uh, Learning the Heartbeat of God. We've been on this journey for, you know, maybe some of you aren't so familiar. We, we started this year, the Lord gave us this really big vision, uh, together with one heart and mind, drawing closer to God. We wanted this year to be a year of intimacy, devoted to uh, us growing not only together as a community, but that really recognizing the unity that we have as the body of Christ comes when we pursue God together. That God is not just a concept. God is not just an excuse for us to get together and sing some songs and read this really old book together. Um, But it's actually in our pursuit of the real and living God that we can have relationship with today uh, that we're bound together in ways that we can't possibly imagine. One of the things I love about meeting with you guys throughout the week and spending time with you is how diverse this community is. And I think that we we only continue to become more and more diverse as we pursue God together. And we recognize then, I think when the pursuit of God is our primary goal, um, that our diversity isn't a scary thing. It's not a liability. It's actually an asset, right? Because the different stories of how we've all encountered God, how we experience Him, the little bits of God's heart that we reflect to one another kind of shine through and we actually begin to treasure one another more as, as the gift that community really is to reveal to us God's heart. And so, you know, through this whole series that we started with, with learning the heartbeat of God, before we kind of move into after Easter talking about listening to the voice of God, um, we've, we've approached it from many different angles, and I'm, I'm really appreciative to so many who have shared this stage with me and the conversations that you guys have been having about what is God's heart actually like? How do we grow to trust Him and who He is? And, and as I was kind of praying through how do we maybe like sum up this series This is kind of where I came to. You know, we talked a little bit about what God's heart is like, and sometimes we've talked about uh, how we approach him. Uh, And this is how I kind of want to wrap up this series, that learning the heartbeat of God is a journey that will take the rest of our lives, and we need to embrace it. It's a journey that's going to take the rest of your life. And the sooner that you can embrace that and be okay with the fact that it's a process and less a product, I think the more you're going to be able to lean into the truth of who God is for you right now. So let's pray. I'm going to pray for you, and if you'd be so gracious as to pray for me. I also was sick this week. How many of you, I know Monica was out, I know Hunter was out, like many of us were feeling this week. I thought I was the only one. I thought it was crazy, like we're having this gorgeous weather, and I'm the one that's like bedridden, but I don't know, I guess it's all of us. So you guys pray for me, and I'm going to pray for you, and we'll see what the Lord has to say. Heavenly Father, um, you're here. And is there any better thing than that truth? But God, sometimes we bring things into this place or you know, even during the week things weigh us down that either we don't believe that you're here or it's a little bit scary uh, that you're here, that you're with us. Because there's still sometimes these filters, Lord, and even as we've been talking about it through these series, that sometimes we have the, uh, these ideas or these misconceptions of your heart um, that we don't believe that you're with us, or maybe we do, uh, but we're a little bit threatened by that. And Holy Spirit, we invite you right now, just if there's anything like that within us, that you would name that lie, 
that you'd shine a light in those dark places and that you would chase it away in the strong name of Jesus. Because we want to believe uh, that your presence to us is a good thing, that it brings healing, it brings hope, it brings restoration. And so, Lord, as we're kind of finishing up this series of learning your heart, I pray that you would continue to instill in us this hunger, this desire to know you more, to not be content to just hear rumors of what you're like or even to bear witness uh, to your transforming presence in the lives of other people, but to be hungry for it in our own lives, that we can experience you here and now and that can do something to us. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I think it's very important that we always come back to this idea that our faith is a journey as much as it is a destination. Because one of the things that I've recognized when, I, when I'm speaking with you, and even as I'm processing my own story when we're talking about knowing God, um, that a lot of times we get stuck in, in maybe one of these two uh, mentalities. We, number one, we think, if I don't understand it, I'm not experiencing it. So we believe that I have to be able to comprehend something of a relationship with God before I can step in and experience that thing, which kind of puts front and center my own capacity, my own ability to wrestle with an idea, to understand the theology and the terminology, and to be able to pick apart scripture and to sing all the songs properly. And then when I do all of that, then I can actually experience relationship with God. And a lot of times what happens there is that we enter into the shame that we're the ones that aren't getting it. How many of you are with me? Now, maybe I'm the only one. That sometimes, don't you feel that sometimes? You, like, you come to church or you listen to podcasts or you talk with Christian brothers and sisters and there's this shame that settles in of like, oh, maybe I'm the one that's not getting it. Like I'm not trying hard enough or I'm not reading my Bible enough or I'm not singing enough worship songs or whatever it might be um, that there's this comprehension because what that betrays is that it's been communicated to us in some way that knowing God is more like doing a cursed Scantron test in order to have this access to God. Is Nathan here? I know he's been railing against the whole like standardized testing thing. I was a teacher for three years, an art teacher. Fortunately, I didn't have to use Scantrons, but my goodness, if we do not raise our children in a culture that tells them that your value and your worth is based on how well you can fill in a bunch of bubbles, right? And what happens when we grow up in a culture like that is we begin to apply that to everything. We begin to apply that to our relationships and our family and our friends and our community and not the least with God, that I have to be able to fill out all these bubbles to be able to be presented as worthy to know God. And we forget that knowing God is not a test that we have to answer correctly, but it's a relationship that we're invited to explore. And I love, you know, I've, I've used this analogy many times because I think it's so helpful. In the Spanish language, there's actually two words for, the, for to know. You know, in English, we say we know something, right? But in Spanish, there's these two different words. Who can give me one of them? Conocer, Conocer and? Saber. Saber. Muy bien. <laughs> De nada. And it's amazing, there's these two words. So saber means, does anybody know? What is saber? It means to know, but what kind of knowing? Say it louder. 
to, to knowledge. So saber is to know, but it's to know knowledge. It's to, to know facts. It's kind of an intellectual knowing of something, okay? But conocer means something different. How would you translate conocer? To know, yes. Thank you, Marshall. It's a relational knowing. I would maybe say to be familiar with, okay? So you might saber who is the first president of the United States, right? That's an, that's an intellectual fact that you know, but you conocer your friends, your family. There's, an, there's an, a knowing of intimacy above intellectual knowledge. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times we put this pressure on ourselves that we are to saber God. We are to know facts about him, and that determines whether or not we're in relationship with him. But I think the invitation is actually for us to conocer, to be familiar with him on a relational level. I think about this in the, like, you know, I think it's so helpful to run our understanding of God through our relationships that we exist in today with our family and our friends. You know, I might say, do you know your beloved? Do you know your husband, your wife, your, your mother, your father, your friends? And you say, yes. And then if you just present me with a series of facts, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know them. I can tell you lots of facts about people that I love, but that's not necessarily an indicator that there is relationship. When I'm talking about if I, you actually ask me if I know my beloved, I'm going to speak to you about what it means to be in relationship, to be familiar, to feel that sense of closeness. Because I think that familiarity actually is the thing that transforms us. Are you aware that knowledge doesn't transform you? Right? Knowledge doesn't change you. To know facts about someone or something, that doesn't do anything to you. It's only on that familiarity that comes through being vulnerable, being open, being willing to be affected, that you're actually changed. And yes, it's helpful to know facts about people that you love. I can think it kind of fleshes out their story and who it is that you're embracing, but it's a poor substitute for the real thing. And I think when we begin to shift our priorities when it comes to knowing God, we recognize that just in the same way that our loving relationships with other human beings are this journey of exploration that's not based on how many facts we know about people that we love. It begins to reset our expectations for knowing God. And so in this series, we've been talking about how what it means to learn the heartbeat of God, not just intellectually to know facts about him, but to be familiar with God on that deep and intimate level. And I kind of started this series um, by talking about how Jesus is the best demonstration of God's heart. In fact, if you want to sum up the entire ministry, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, you could say that Jesus came to reveal to us what the heart of God is really like for all of mankind, and not just for mankind, but for all of creation. And so I want to take that a little bit farther today to say we can lean against Jesus to be reminded of what God's heart for us sounds like. We can literally, and I use that term specifically, we can literally lean against Jesus to be reminded of what God's heart for us sounds like. Towards the end of the Gospel of John, we encounter um, the, the Last Supper. And John really takes that moment where in the other Gospels it's maybe one, one and a half chapters. And he really broadens it out. 
And there's this moment where Jesus is speaking about how one of his disciples is going to betray him. And all of the disciples start to kind of worry, like, well, gosh, who's he talking about? Because, you know, Jesus was never really that pointed with how he was. He was always kind of giving them these hints and engaging them and, and encouraging them to interact with him. And we find there's this little moment that I think it's so easy for us to miss the kind of relational dynamics of what's happening in John 13. So Jesus has kind of said, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. And it says, one of them... The disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Now the larger dynamics of this moment are about finding out who is the one that is going to accuse Jesus and hand him over to the authorities. And of course, we know that it's Judas because Jesus goes on to say, the one who who dips his bread right after me. And Judas does that and he says, friend, go and do what it is that you're going to do. But we see in this little moment, we have these two disciples, Simon Peter and John, the actual writer of this gospel. And one of the things that I love, that John never mentions himself by name. Do you ever notice that? He always says, the one whom Jesus loved. He always speaks about himself in the third person. And sometimes we can read that and say, oh, he seems very self-centered. He's like saying like, oh, I'm, I'm Jesus' favorite. And he's kind of rubbing it, you know, in the faces of the other disciples. But I actually think there's something else going on in this moment. I think John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved out of a place of humility, of recognizing his true identity and it's what the second thing that it does is it actually invites us to put ourselves in John's shoes or sandals, technically, first century. <laughs> that John is saying, I want you to recognize that you are the disciple whom Jesus loves. And I want you to put yourself in, in, in my shoes, put yourself in my place and witness the story of Jesus unfolding as I witnessed it so that you might experience what I experienced in this. And so John's anonymity is actually the placeholder, the invitation for us to put ourselves in the story. One of the things that I love about John, I have a special affection for the writings of John, the gospel and the letters that he writes towards uh, the end of our New Testament, is that it actually becomes the foundation for Celtic Christianity in the British Isles, in, in Ireland, in Scotland, in England, Wales, Celtic Christianity had its own special uh, flavor or experience um, of, of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. And, and what happened basically was that missionaries kind of were sent out through the known world, through the Roman Empire, kind of entered up into uh, the, the Celtic realm. Um, they evangelized the Celts. Many of you are familiar with the story of St. Patrick. And they actually began to really blossom in terms of their closeness to Jesus. And then the entire Roman, uh, the Roman Empire collapsed. The Goths, the Visigoths, the Astrogoths, all the Goths, you know. Any Goths in here today? No? Anybody love Dead Can Dance or The Cure? Old school Goths? Anyway, not those kind of Goths. All these Goths came in, the, the Roman Empire collapsed, and Celtic Christianity was actually left to its own devices off on the side while the empire was being rebuilt, and, and it was actually severed from Christianity. And then eventually in the 600s, there became this very awkward period where Roman Uh, Roman Christian religion and Celtic Christian religion were trying to find a meeting place and trying to recombine these two different expressions of Christianity. But Celtic Christianity was based on the story of St. John, the the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
the disciple who is able to lean back onto the breast of Jesus and to listen to the heartbeat of God. And in Celtic Christianity, it was that image of intimacy, of being able to hear God's heartbeat and that closeness and that vulnerability that became foundational for their version of Christianity. Whereas Rome was built on the authority of St. Peter when Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, upon this rock I will build my church. That's how Rome was established. And, and maybe many of you know the story of Peter. Peter was very brash and he was always the first one in and the first one out and he was always asking these questions and he was very action oriented as a disciple and we can almost read these two disciples St. Peter and St. John as these two different halves of the Christian experience that John speaks to us from the place of contemplation of being intimate with God in our inner world that it's about intimacy with God it's about leaning against the breast of Jesus and hearing his heartbeat And Peter speaks to us of faithful action, of not just being hearers of the word, but also doers. That our faith has this outer component to it. And what we need to do as believers, as Jesus followers, is to hold in creative tension the messages of John and of Peter. Of that that inner world, that intimacy of God, and that outer world, the action that we're called to as Christians. And when we hold those two things in tension and we read this story, we even see those little moments. I want to read it again in John 13. So one of them, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. There's already this closeness with Jesus. And then Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Come on, let's go, let's do, let's figure it out. What's happening? And then John leans back against Jesus because he already has that closeness, that intimacy. And he asks the question, Lord, Who is it? So this closeness and this seeking, this striving, exist hand in hand in this just little vignette in the story of Jesus. And I know so often in my own life I'm trying to find that balance. But maybe like you, I inevitably seek these answers outside of myself. Well, if I could just do more, if I could just go to other people, I could read more books or listen to more podcasts or just try harder, then maybe I'll find the balance that I need. Even when we speak of spiritual discipline and spiritual practices, we have this exterior perspective that the answers are found out there somewhere, and I can somehow just tap into everything outside of me to find the balance that I really need in my life. But I recognize so often that it's not outside of myself It's not necessarily in action, in blind action that the answers are found, but it's actually about turning inward. It's about those moments of seeking in my inner life, in the depths of my being, the parts of me that are connected to God at all times, whether I realize it or not, that I will find the answers that I so desperately need. And this is why so often in my own life, the most powerful prayer that I have found that recenters me, that gathers me back to Jesus, is just to say, here. That's it, one word. Here. Here I am. You know, we see this throughout Scripture, right? All these different people, and that's their prayer. God calls them, or God speaks to them through an angel, and all they do is to say, here. Here I am. And it's such a powerful and simple prayer because it places us in a space. It's a geographical prayer. 
And it's a prayer of openness that invites us to tap into our interior world, our inside world, and to anchor ourselves to the presence of God so that we can lean against him to believe that it's our intimacy, it's our closeness with him that actually defines our relationship. So I actually want us to practice this. We're going to take a moment of stillness and I want you to pray that prayer of here, here I am. But what I want you to do is I want you to kind of tap into your divine imagination and, and put yourself in the place of John to recognize, oh, I am the one whom Jesus loves. I am Jesus' beloved. And I'm already reclining near him in this moment. And to kind of resist the temptation to ask questions or, you know, make excuses why you haven't been here in so long but just to rest in the presence of Jesus. So I'm going to pray. We're just going to take this moment of stillness just to practice that presence of God, of leaning against Jesus. So Father, you've given us these two models in John and Peter, these disciples that were so dear to you. And God, a lot of times we're very quick to step into the shoes of Peter to act, to do, to be rash, to make these assumptions, to run headfirst into the next thing. But sometimes you're inviting us to recline into the position of John, just to lean against you without expectation, without questions or excuses, but just to be in your presence. So Holy Spirit, just teach us how to rest in your presence, even just for a moment, that we can feel our closeness to you. mind's eye, in the deepest part of yourself, can you see him? How does he look at you? How does he receive your presence?
sometimes we just, we overcomplicate it. We overcomplicate it. We make it more than it's supposed to be. And we forget what it's really about. That at the core, it's about resting into the presence of Jesus, of allowing him to reveal himself to us as he truly is, not in our assumptions of how he's supposed to be. And there's something different. Like, do you feel it? Does it feel different right now? Do you feel different than when you came in? You know, because for some of us, those moments of stillness or silence, our hearts start racing, right? All the feels start to come up. And the shame and the guilt, all that stuff starts to come up. For some of us, our minds start racing. We begin to analyze the thing, the moment. And what we're actually doing is we're thinking space between us and Jesus, right? And for some of us, it's our bodies. We start to get really twitchy all of a sudden because we don't know what to do with stillness. We're action-oriented people. We gotta do, we gotta do, we gotta do. And anytime that we slow down and we stop doing, somehow we stop existing. And that's the importance, I think, precisely in seeing where the resistance is when you quietly lean into the presence of Jesus. Wherever the resistance is, that's where the work is happening. So don't feel discouraged when that stuff comes up. Be encouraged because that means that Jesus' presence is actually bringing something up from within you that needs to be addressed so that you can learn to rest into his presence. And I love in the Gospels, you know, when we get to the story, and I'm so excited for Easter in just a couple weeks because we see this, that as soon as the women come back to the disciples after the resurrection, they say, We've, Jesus has been risen. He's, he's gone from the tomb. Who are the first two disciples that run down there to see if it's true? It's Peter and it's John. It's blessed action, and it's blessed contemplation. And so we always have to hold those two in creative tension and recognize where is our natural proclivity? Do we naturally enter into being action-oriented Christians, or are we naturally more contemplative, but learning how to live that balanced life that begins with that prayer that speaks here? And so I think this is the beauty of being able to orient ourselves back to the simple presence of Jesus, that the closeness that we have with Jesus enables us to ask the questions deep within our own hearts, knowing we don't have to be a finished product. I think a lot of times we have that shame of asking the questions that are deepest within ourselves because we feel like the questions might come between us and Jesus, that we have to get those things figured out before we can come to him but to recognize actually like in this little story that it's John because he's already reclining against the breast of Jesus that he can ask the question that's floating in the room and that we have that same permission that our questions and our struggles do not keep us from him but it's the closeness that we already have, the permission he's given us to come close to him that's, that gives us the courage to listen to our own hearts and to ask the question that's beneath the question that's beneath the question. And we even find this in another part of the writings of John. In 1 John chapter 3, he writes this as an encouragement to us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. You realize that being a child of God is not something you can earn. It's already something that was gifted to you in your DNA. 
And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And listen to this. And what we will be has not yet been made known. Isn't that strange? Now we're children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. You'll say, well, what would that be? Well, if I knew, we wouldn't have to read this scripture, would we? <laughs> I don't know. John didn't know. And he had this total intimacy with God. Now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. So the intimacy that we have with God now doesn't mean that we're a finished product, that all of the answers have been given to us, but it actually means we have this permission to begin this journey with God, birthed out of the closeness that we have with Him, and to relax a little bit and to recognize we haven't arrived, we're not finished products, and that's okay. Your faults... Your struggles, they're not a liability. But you actually get to bring those things to Jesus now. So many times in my life, here I am at 35, and there's so many things in my life that when I'm insecure, when I'm disconnected from Jesus, I just think, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be farther along in my life than I am right now. Can I get an amen? Can anybody? Right? Right? Um, That's just (laughs) praise break, Ricardo. I think this happens to all of us. We've, we've imported these narratives from our society that say you're supposed to be farther along. By this age, you should be at this level. You should be making this much money and you should have this much advancement in your career. And all of these narratives that we import that tell us that we're not okay where we are right now. And the problem is that we begin to believe those storylines and we start to try to live out these storylines that are not ours. We start to try to live someone else's story because what happens when we don't have that hearness with God is we compare ourselves to other people and that becomes the counterfeit intimacy that we're looking for. The counterfeit intimacy that we were designed to have with God, we begin to put that on other people and other people's stories and we begin to live out those stories and say, oh, I should be more put together like my friend Landon. I should have a wonderful marriage like my friend Greg or whatever it might be, you know, and we heap this shame upon ourselves. And what happens in that moment is that we begin to lose the imagination that God has granted us to see beyond our current circumstances. And it shuts us off to the vision that God has for each of us in our individual lives. And again, there's this beautiful strand in Celtic Christianity that in its highs and lows and in moments when it kind of went underground and kind of went above ground that we find as we kind of fast forward to the story in the 19th century, we have uh, the poet, the author, and the minister, George MacDonald. Are any of you familiar with George MacDonald? You ever read The Princess and the Goblin? He was an amazing children's storyteller. He also wrote poetry. He was raised uh, in a small village in Scotland and he was told uh, these Celtic stories that were kind of birthed out of that, that St. John intimacy. And he, he memorized the prayers that had existed within his own tradition for eons. And eventually he became a minister within the Scottish church. But at that point, the Scottish church had very much moved away from its heritage and had imported a, a, a version of Christianity that was very tight-fisted and was very um, authoritative. 
And there's actually, uh, there's this story that when someone uh, kind of explained to him this theology that God only loves certain people and chooses them before they're even born to go to heaven and he rejects other people that George MacDonald actually began to weep because he could not believe that his God, the God revealed in Jesus, would be so cruel as to live in that way. But the stories that George MacDonald wrote were incredibly informed by his belief about what God was really, really like. That that closeness, that intimacy that we were offered through Jesus becomes that, that cornerstone of our faith, becomes that, that grounding that gives us permission to continue on in the journey. And it kind of brings this place of honesty, but also divine imagination. That imagination is not the escape from reality, but that imagination actually can root us deeper in reality. Because imagination enables us to go beyond our surface reading of the present moment in our lives because we're importing other storylines or we're telling ourselves, I should be at this point or I should look more like that. And George said this, the pure in heart shall see God. He's kind of referencing this line from 1 John. The seeing of him will be the sign that we are like him. For only by being like him can we see him as he is. But when we shall be fit to look him in the face, God only knows. That is the heart of my hopes by day and my dreams by night. To behold the face of Jesus seems to me the one thing to be desired. And so for George MacDonald, it was that imagination that gave him this vision to say, that is the surest and best thing that I can hope for in all of my life, is to be able to encounter my God in the face of Jesus, to see him face to face. And whenever I'm fully able to do that, that's God's timing. That's for him to reveal to me. But that is the yearning, the deepest desire within my own heart. And so I want us to just to take another moment and we're going to enter back into that space of leaning against Jesus, of reclining against him, of leaning our heads against his breast so that we might hear the heartbeat of God for us. And when you're in that place, when all of your defenses are down and all of your, you should be here and you should be there, all of that melts away in the presence of Jesus, I want you to begin to listen to your own heartbeat. And what's the deepest question within you right now? What's the thing that's covered over by all the guilt and the shame? The thing that you're afraid to ask Jesus? And when you find yourself leaning against his presence, to give yourself permission to ask the question within your own heart. So let's pray again and enter into that space. Holy Spirit, give us divine imagination. First of all, to let go of all the narratives that we heap upon ourselves that shut down our ability to imagine, our ability to open ourselves up to you and what's possible. Bring us back to that space of, of leaning against Jesus, of being embraced by him. Let us each see in the face of Jesus whatever it is that we need to see. And out of that space, Holy Spirit, would you begin to reveal to us each with one to another, like in, a, in the deepest part of our own hearts. What's the question that we want to ask? Not as a way to, to find intimacy, but the permission to ask that question out of intimacy. 
speak to us for we're listening. For me, so often, when I feel the need to recenter, to come back, come back to the heart of all of it, to pray that prayer, here I am. The first thing that Jesus says to me is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. We see this time and again when, when either angels visit people throughout the scriptures or even Jesus himself in his resurrection. He says, don't be afraid. My presence to you is a good thing. Lean against me. Incline your ear to me. And let's dialogue. Let's talk. I think this brings us back to recognizing that this gives us courage for the journey that we're on in learning the heartbeat of God. That we don't always know the way and we can't predict what it should look like. You can't. If you're a future planner and you've got it all, try, you're trying to figure it out, like, just forget it. Just let go. We cannot predict what it should look like, but we can trust God in the here and now to guide us. We can reorient our values to say it's about intimacy with God from moment to moment. It's about leaning against Jesus, having that closeness with him that defines what the journey is going to look like, not the expectations of where we should be at certain points in our lives. And again, even blessed Paul, he speaks of this in a very famous chapter in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what's in part disappears. So he's saying even all of these amazing spiritual gifts that we have and we practice within the church, they're guideposts, they're hints, they're samples, but they're not the full thing. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only as a reflection in a mirror. Then, we shall see face to face. Now, I know in part. 
Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now we see only as in a mirror, dimly lit. But then, in that blessed day, when we see Jesus face to face, where there is no veil between us, when it's finished, when it's done, we come face to face with him, we're going to see him face to face. And we're blessed through our imagination, through the presence of our beloved around us to get these hints of what God is like and that gives us the courage to continue down the path. And these three remain faith, to believe in something that we don't always see, hope to recognize that God will finish what he started, but love, the greatest of these is love that becomes the engine of our journey. And I have to constantly remind myself that there's still more to come, that I'm not a finished product, that there's more that God wants to do in me and through me. And that's not an indictment against myself. I can't be beating myself up because I haven't arrived at something. But it is an invitation for me to learn how to trust God more day by day, that he knows what he's doing, and he knows where he's leading me. And so this journey requires in us that humility that we see in John to recognize that we are the beloved, and requires in us the tenacity of Peter to dive in, to keep going even when we mess up, and Lord knows Peter messed up, to keep coming back to him, to keep trying again, and to hold those two in creative tension. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And I'm going to pray over us a beautiful prayer written by a man who knew so well how to hold contemplation and action in this creative tension of faith uh, the monk Thomas Merton. He was uh, at a monastery in Kentucky in the 50s, 60s, wrote incredible volumes about the spiritual journey. I'm gonna pray this prayer. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to allow, as I, as I pray this, I want this prayer to become uh, your own. And just let it sink into you. See what it does to you. If it, if it releases some of that pressure to get it right if it rescues you from that idea that until I understand it, I cannot experience, but rather to say, I'm experiencing something that I cannot possibly understand, and that's okay. Let's pray. Just listen, let's see what this first line does for you, all right? My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. Can someone testify? My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, 
for you are ever with me and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.